Welcome back to the Monica Matthews Show, Life, Love, and Liberty. As you guys know, it's another day in paradise here in fascist America. Oh, God, I wish I was kidding. It's always something. And as you know, I talk about life, love, and liberty. My initial show was faith, life, and politics, and people thought I was nuts six years ago when I started live on the radio talking about faith and politics. I'm from the South. As you guys know, we do not mix those two. It's like bad manners at the dinner table. It's like disclosing uh, family business, right? And here we are, you know, and I hate to say I told you so, but I was really hoping that the church would get involved and they did. They did. In record numbers, we got involved with President Trump's campaigning and presidency. Now, You also know I am a staunch, vehement, ardent opponent of the religious spirit that lives in this country, in our church, uh, through otherwise known as uh, religious, holy rolling, never Trumpers. I have always called people out for that, uh, for assuming that God can't use whomever the heck he chooses to use, as we've seen all throughout scripture. So I've caught a lot of flack for that, and I'm fine. I'm, I'm a big girl. I can handle it. And the truth is worth it. And the truth, if we're going to continue to speak it, is going to be risky, and it's going to cost us. And someone who's been speaking truth, who actually took a lot of chances uh, aligning with President Trump in terms of coming out of a generational way of thinking within the black church specifically as it pertains to the Democrat Party, I'm going to talk a little bit about that today and also see how our our favorite president is uh, is faring because he's someone who speaks with the president on the regular. But today with me, I have Dr. Daryl Scott. He's an American pastor, member of former President Donald Trump's executive transition team. He is a co-founder of the New Spirit Revival Center in, in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. He's also a co-founder and board member of the National Diversity Coalition for Trump, Dr. Daryl Scott. Thanks for joining me. How are you, sir? Doing great. Thank you for having me. It's about time. I've been begging to get on for like the last five years. <laughs> and you wouldn't let me out, on. How are you going to start out my show with a lie? I mean. Because I'm black. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I did not even say that. Did not even. Okay. See, so you trying to get me in trouble. I stay in trouble. <laughs> this is going to teach you not to let loose cannons on. Okay. And I've had some loose cannons, but apparently I have met my match in the loose cannon department. And you know what, though? No, thank I, you for having me. I really kidding? enjoy it. Appreciate yeah. this opportunity. I really, really do. Of course. Well, thank you for taking the time to do it because it's necessary. It is a necessary conversation that needs to be had. I'm telling you, I've been over here like, where's the church? Where, where, where is everyone? And you're doing your thing. And since it's like, all right, I got to start at the beginning. I need to know what was it that spoke to you about aligning with Donald Trump in the first place? Let's start there. Well, a lot, a lot of people don't know. I didn't just meet him when he decided to run for president. Okay. I actually met him. Pastor Paula White introduced me to him over 10 years ago. Okay. 
I met him back in, uh, I think it was late 2010 or early 2011. And at that time, he was considering running for president against Barack Obama in the 2012 election. And so I had a chance to meet him, and we spent several hours together and talked about a lot of different things. Uh, uh, and we talked about a lot of race, um, racial issues as well. In fact, the very first thing I ever said to Donald Trump out of my mouth was, what makes you think black people would vote for you? Word on the street is you're a racist. That's the very first thing I ever said to him. Okay. And he looked me right in my eyes and he said, I'm about the least racist person you ever want to meet. In my line of work, I can't be racist. I work with all types of people with all walks of life, right? Right. And then he left it right there. He didn't try to convince me Amen. that he wasn't a racist. He didn't try to go overboard and say, well, I had a black friend in the third grade <laughs> or I knew somebody black before. And you know what? It made me think. If someone accused me of being racist towards white people, how would I reply? I would reply the same way he does. I would say no, and I would be dismissive of the accusation. Right. And so people want Trump to bend over backwards and dance and sag his blue jeans, turn his hat backwards and start bumping rap music to prove that he's pro-black. That's not going to happen. Right. And it shouldn't happen because, once again, if someone accused me the same way and said you're anti-white, I would say no, I'm not. But I wouldn't try to stereotypically act white in order to prove to white people that I'm not anti-white. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Because you can't ever satisfy a spirit of accusation anyway. And so we know that's what we're dealing with in this whole spiritual mess that we're in. So good for him. And how about that? So that's news to me that he was so actually considering. When I, met him, when I met him, I liked him. And our personality yeah. Yeah. reminds me of a white meat. Uh, oh lord <laughs> <laughs> our personality click he and i exchanged numbers and we actually stayed in touch and then in 2015 in may i got a phone call no he decided not to run against obama i was a little right. bit disappointed because i would have been with him then okay. because by this time we had made friends and i considered him a friend he called me in 2015 he said uh I'm 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 running this time. Are you still in? I was like, of course I'm still in. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, come to Trump Tower and, and I'm coming down that escalator and the rest is history. But once again, we were friends. I supported him initially because he was a friend. He was number 17 in the field of 17. No one gave him a chance. Those around him knew he had the potential to win. The rest of the public thought it was just a flash in the pan. Right. I told him, I said, if you can show the people out there what I see back here, You've got, you've got more of a, a, a fighter's chance. And uh, the rest is history. Now, they want to get mad at him because he won. But, heck, what do you want him to do? He came in, and he came in as a serious candidate and immediately found himself under attack. Yes. He immediately was ridiculed and, and, and castigated. And, you know, he responded by, hey, wait a minute. And his counterpunch was harder than their first punches, and they want to act like he was the instigator, which he was not. He right. was serious from the beginning when everyone said he wasn't serious. Right. Well, and now, as you may or may not know, uh, the the overarching, you know, uh, Q phenomenon. And listen, I'm not someone who's followed that, but I do have listeners who send me stuff consistently, as you can imagine, as I'm sure people do you. And, you know, people feel like, and, and some people really do believe as a religion, unfortunately, that, that President Trump was kind of in on this whole, hey, uh, let's expose all of this. And so he, he's almost, some people almost see him as like some kind of a plant 
to to take the election back from Hillary, and we and we don't have to go into all of that this show. I can bring you back on, and we can get it another time. But I'm just telling you, there are some people who look at the president as someone who did put his life and his family, and actually is still doing that to this day, in my humble opinion, on the line in order to to bring a lot of things to light that would not have otherwise come to light. And as a minister, you know, you're a pastor, I'm a minister, two different, entirely different roles. I would never want your role. Um, it, it is in mine is hard enough, but as I see it as a minister, we have a hurting, aching country. And as you know, people, whenever they get this way and they get crazy and out of sorts and fearful, and they're all in their lizard brains and, you know, they're all up in their flesh, they can't see straight and they don't know what to believe and they don't know who to believe. And when Donald Trump left the White House, it left a major hole in the hearts and the psyches of American people that I have personally been tending to since November 4th. I mean, it it has been a full-time job. And so I did not know, thank you for sharing that, that the president was considering running in 2012. Um, I didn't know that. That's news to me. Um, So Mm -hmm. good. Thank you for that information. Now, okay, Daryl, have you always been... Or are you a, a Republican, and have you always been a Republican? If not, how did you get here? No, you know what i I was one that voted the person rather than the party. Okay. Um, and so, in going back, I voted for uh, Reagan. Okay. And then I voted for first Bush, but then I voted. For Bill Clinton. One of the reasons I voted for Bill Clinton was because I had met him and I liked him. And one of a friend of mine, in fact, was used to be my very best friend when we were very, very young. He was a member of his cabinet. He was with Clinton. Uh, he had moved to Arkansas and he helped Clinton with his campaign. And I went towards him. Uh, uh-huh. I voted for Bush Jr. I liked I liked Jr. Okay. So I voted for Bush Jr. I was very active with his campaign. I attended the inauguration and everything. When Obama came along, I said, uh, I remember because I own a radio station and I would be on my radio station saying, if the only reason you're going to vote for this guy is because he's black, Mm -hmm. then you've insulted him. I said, I won't, I won't hire a landscaper just because he's black. You better be able to cut some grass. I'm going to hire a plumber. (laughs) Now, here's the thing. And I used to say it then. I said, if I close my eyes, Mm -hmm. I'm going to listen and I'm going to go with McCain. If I open my eyes, I got to go with Obama. And so it was, to be honest, it was a coin flip for me. Now, I had met Obama. Obama's been to my church. Mm-hmm. He sat in the office with me. I spent a lot of time with him. He wasn't, a, he wasn't president yet. He was Senator Obama. Okay. And I didn't like the guy. I did not like him. We were in the room one-on-one. We spent some time together, and I really didn't care for him because he was not a people person at all. Got it. You know, when I sat in the room with him, it was like I was with a girl on the first date asking him questions and getting one word answers to the point where I left him in there. I told one of my guys, I said, look, when this guy's ready to go, somebody walk him out. And I just left him in there. Wow. Because, you know, first of all, I'm older than him. Right. And you're at my church. You're at my event. It was an event they were having there in my, in my facility. Right. And But he's not, he wasn't a people person. Now, I voted for him the first time. No, or did I? Did I vote for him or did I sit it out? I voted for Obama. I voted down ballot Republican. I voted for Obama the first time. Second time, I didn't. Second time, I sat it out. I didn't go with him or Romney. I didn't like either one of them. Mm -hmm. 
And so, I mean, so, you know, that's how yeah. I was. I both the person at the party and, um, I think, that's, Trump, I think that's a sober different. way. Well, well, sure. With Trump, it's different. You have a relationship. You'd met him years ago. He's obviously a people person. Um, and I, and I think too, yeah, I mean, you know what? I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I voted for Obama the first time. Of course, this, my full, listen, my excuse for that is because I was apolitical at the time I was writing for politicians and for judges right. and I was apolitical. So I didn't really care. I was raised by a hardcore Democrat. I thought all of them were full of crap, to be honest with you. And I was writing for some of them that proved to be nothing but full of crap. So I thought, you know what? I, I'm just, there was no way in two hells I was voting for John McCain. That was not going to happen. So I thought to myself, okay, this is the route. And I was so proud. I'm not going to lie. I was so proud of our country for getting to this place where it was like, you know, you could accuse me of voting for him, not because he was black, but because he was better than I thought he was better. Now I see that they're equals. John McCain, um, I thought he was better than him, but I was also, you know, in addition to that, I was proud that we'd come this far in such a short period of time, in my humble opinion, as a nation, that we would even have a black candidate on a presidential ballot was just like, wow, that's amazing. Again, I was very green in following politicians. I just, you know, I stayed out of it. I wrote for local judges and that was about it. So that's interesting. So you're still the person who's going to vote according to what you're discerning, according to the candidate and not by the party. Is that right? Right, right. And that's how I've always been. And even, like you said, being apolitical, as a pastor, I let, you know, the the politicians would come around every year, every two years. Here they come, and they want to come. And so I didn't deny anybody. I let the Democrats in, I let the Republicans in. But what I did start doing was make them wait around to the end of service. They used to come in and want to get up, Mm -hmm. speak to your congregation, (laughs) and then leave. I said, no, they're going to sit their butt there and hear this message. Right. Right. Good for you. And then, you know, hey, and then, you know what else I do? I watch them at offer time. And if they get up and they ain't putting nothing in that box, then, <laughs> hey, listen, you're not going to come over here and pimp my congregation out for votes. I mean, we don't see you again for two more years. Exactly. Well, and not so, to mention, you know, was, hold on now, mm-hmm. not, you know, you're hitting on something, and we've got some callers on the line, too. So for those of you on, on hold, just hang tight with me for a second. We've got someone from uh, Florida and South Carolina. We'll get to you guys in just a minute. Um, and cause we're taping, we're doing a live show today, but, um, along those lines, we saw where Kamala was trying to like, like you said, pimping out the black church. Right. And we know historically that's been the game. And yeah. I grew up singing in black churches. So I, I know exactly how this stuff rolls and it is extremely frustrating because the black congregations and pastors will absolutely utilize their pulpits and not just for multiple candidates to get up and speak. It's not, it's not, there's nothing equitable in this whole experience to steal a horrible phrase from the left. But it is absolutely pay-for-play in some churches. And you've got 501c3 statuses involved. And I'm like, how how is that even possible? Why is that allowed whenever it comes to the left? What what are your feelings on the 501c3 status? No, no, listen. Um, the left never had a problem with politicians and churches until Trump started going to church. Right. So when the left cries separation of church and state, they're really saying separation of church and Trump. Right. They didn't mind. Obama went to every church in America. Uh, the politicians for years came to churches or sent their rep- uh, representatives excuse me, to, to churches. It was only when Trump began to utilize that voting block right. uh, that 
it became taboo. You hear, they don't talk about it anymore. I even tweeted something about that. I said, where's all that separation of church and state talk? Now that Kamala Harris has sent yep. 300 churches a video feed telling them how they should vote. That's right. And so there's a lot of hypocrisy there. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. When they say that. Yeah, I do. It's a lot of hypocrisy. I it's do. Just, you know, if you have my candidate in your church, it's okay. But if you don't have my candidate in your church, it's not okay. <laughs> or or right. they would say, let Trump go to the white churches. But right. Trump didn't come to black churches. Right. That's what it was. Right. And later in the show, we're going to get to, because I, I want to highlight, I really want you to highlight some of the things that the president implemented that are, that are going to be evergreen, that are things that cannot be overturned by this regime. But before we get to that, I want to get to some callers. So let's go to uh, caller number one, I think would like to ask Dr. Scott, what place does the black church hold in voting rights and voting opportunities for us in the future? Welcome to the Monica Matthews show. Who are we talking with? How you doing, Monica? This is, uh, Eric and, uh, probably the pastor knows me better as uh, Raven wild. Uh <laughs> oh, I feel like this is going to be trouble. <laughs> <laughs> okay is it are you gonna yes, behave sir, it's me pastor <laughs> oh no i want to go I, on record man, i want to go on record and say on the baltimore ravens suck let's get that out the way first <laughs> oh, now we can God. focus on the topic for the day <laughs> here you go okay hey, uh, I, I was wondering yes myself sir. i am a retired police officer former military person i'm a what I consider myself uh, right leading, leaning moderate. You know, I believe in strong borders. I believe in the Second Amendment, but I also believe in a woman's choice, and I also believe in you know, in in letting people live the way they want to live, as long as it doesn't infringe upon my rights. Um, as in the church, it's always been a focal point of getting out the black vote and registering voters. And I like to ask the pastor, what place do they have today? And do they still have a place as a focal point for getting out the black vote? I don't care if it's for Republican or Democrat. Do you still think that they hold such an esteemed position in our culture nowadays? Well, absolutely. Here's the thing. It's been the Baptist church that has been a forerunner and a pioneer in civil rights activity in America. If it had not been for the Baptist church, there's no telling where the black community would be uh, in America right now. The Baptist, Baptist Church has been the pioneer and the forerunner and the innovator regarding that. Now, I'm Pentecostal. Pentecostals have always been so heavenly minded. We were no earthly good. Um, the other denominations uh, that are black, the AME Church was pretty active, but the Baptist Church has been the forerunner. So right. when you look at churches that have a strong Baptist presence there, you'll see that same, those same initiatives now. Uh, with the voter registration and the get out the vote and the poll workers and different things like that. The black church has always been one of the leaders in that area and continue to be so to this day. Hey, Eric, you still there? Yeah, yeah I, I can see that. I just, you know, I, I just don't, only one thing real quick. It's just that the, the outreach, the outreach has to start. Now, I wasn't mad when Trump was going to the churches because every politician uses that voter block. But, I, man, for people like me in the middle that lean slightly either or, the outreach has got to be more. Well, yeah, the, the outreach has to come more so from the party 
than an individual candidate. It's the party, and that's something I had. Uh, I've had a lot of conversations with the RNC about the outreach. They're using antiquated methods. To, in other words, watch this. The Republican Party, and when I say that, I say the white people. They want to reach black people the white way, and it's not working. You have to meet a person on the ground that they're on. And so, the, the, you know, if they say, well, the Democratic Party is pandering, and the Democratic Party is going to the cookouts, and the Democratic Party is going in the community, and the Republicans don't want to do that. If that be the case, then the Republican Party can't whine about not getting that black vote. If that's what it takes, if we're community-oriented, and these cookouts and these social events have a significance to us, then we have to uh, invite ourselves to those events, show ourselves in the community, not just every two years, but on a regular basis, and then we can um, influence the the, uh, the black voter into seeing that the the right way is the is the right way. I agree wholeheartedly. I'll just end this sir with uh, Brown Super Sucks. <laughs> well, let me say this. Let me say this. I had a conversation with someone before, and I said that same thing. And they said, well, we just thought the black community would see the issues and was, because I, I complained about the lack of uh, campaign outreach in the black, black community. And they said, well, we just thought the black community would see the issues and see the policies and the positions of the Republican Party and automatically gravitate to it. I said, if that be the case, why are you spending billions to reach white voters and nothing to reach what black voters? Shouldn't the white voters just get it? Too, and so that's the conundrum. Yeah, they should just get it. Yeah, there has to be. I mean, if you're going to use that excuse, if they're going to say that the black people should just get it, so we don't have to do outreach, then don't do any Lincoln Day dinners. Don't do any white outreach. Don't do any outreach at all, and assume that everybody should just get it. Right. And so you know that's that's something that the Republican Party does indeed have to work on going forward, or we'll never win another election again because that sleeping giant that the black vote is woke up. It's not going back to sleep. Right. Yeah, I want to talk about that some more. No, Eric, thank you not. for your service, sir. I appreciate your call, and thank you for your service. And this show will actually be up a little bit later this thank evening, you, so check it out. You're welcome. Have a good one. Okay, so I I, you're welcome. So, Pastor, I want to talk about that. All right, so I, because you and I've seen you tweet that, right, that why mm-hmm. don't the Republicans get out and didn't listen? You're talking to someone who... I, clearly, I'm white. Okay, I happen to have a. My late husband was black. Uh, my daughter is bi ethnic, as Alvita refers to her, um, and she is, and that's how I see her. She is a beautiful black and white uh, young lady. I catch a lot of flack because I am white and I speak to cultural issues and ethnic issues and some things I cannot understand I will never be able to relate to because of the color of my skin. I don't walk into places and deal with the same things that my daughter does. I get that. My daughter also doesn't walk into places looking for things of that nature. I'm not uncomfortable going to barbecues or to churches or to rallies or whatever it's going to take to, you know, or freaknik or whatever to get out and rock the vote. I'm not afraid to do that. I'm not ashamed to do that. Uh, It's not beneath me. It is not weird to me. But a lot of people who look like me feel like they have been told to sit down 
and shut up because they don't, and especially since the Black Lives Matter movement and this whole equitable movement, and you don't understand what it's like, and you'll never understand, so just sit down over there and be quiet. So what's the answer to that? That is a very serious question. Well. Did I lose you? I mean, you you covered a lot. No, okay. no, but you know what? You have the unique privilege of, since you do have a biracial daughter, you have um, a connection and a closeness sure. that a lot of other people don't have. But, you know, I think that's just an excuse that people try to use saying, you can't talk about it. You stay out yeah. of it. Listen, we're all human. Amen. We're all American citizens. We all have issues. We all have circumstances and situations. You know, the Bible says there is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. Right. In other words, everybody has things to deal with. Everybody in America can attack, can uh, um, attach a position of victimhood to themselves because sure. everybody has been victimized in some way, form, or fashion by somebody Amen. in their past. Right. And so what we're not looking for, when we're looking for solutions, we're not looking for excuses. Amen. And you have a lot of people that, on the left and right that are simply race baiters. If they keep a person in the position of perpetual victimhood, um, then right. you can keep them locked in a certain type of mindset. Now, we don't want to deny the victimization. We don't want to deny the fact that there have been wrongs that need to be righted. You know, I tell people all the time, I say, listen, I don't really have a position on reparation, mm -hmm. but if I get a check, I'm cashing mine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going out beat the drum for it. I'm not going out crusade for it. I'm not the angry militant black man that sat it out there. Give us our reparations. But if somebody else does that and the oh, check okay. comes to Daryl Scott's house, I'm catching it. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing, Monica. I, I'm 62 years old. I'll mm -hmm. be 63 years old this year. I was raised up in the 60s. I was born in 1958. I was mm -hmm. raised up in the 60s, civil rights movement. I remember the day Kennedy was shot. I remember the day Martin Luther King Jr. died. I remember the riots. We had riots in Cleveland and everything. But here's the thing. My father always had a job. We were never on welfare. My father and my mother did not cultivate a hate-whiting environment in our home. That's right. My father's best friend, Mr. Tony, was white when we were, when we were, were, were young. So we didn't have that ingrained in us. That's right. So when we moved on our street, we were like the second or third black family on our street. We moved over there in 1965. And so I grew up playing with the white boys and the white girls until, you know, the white flight occurred. They moved and the blacks moved in. But the thing is this, that's learned behavior. Racism is learned behavior. Right. This is learned behavior. And I didn't learn that behavior. It was it's taught in a lot of homes, but it wasn't taught in my home. My father got up and went to work every day. And so I'm not minimizing anyone else's experience, sure. but it wasn't my experience. And I don't want to make what's descriptive prescriptive. Right. You know, descriptive is one thing, but you can't say because one white person did you wrong that all white people are wrong. That's no right. more than you can say that one black person did you wrong, all black people are wrong. Now, we've got some issues that need to be addressed. We can come to the table and address them. And um, I believe we can find solutions if everybody comes to that table with an open mind. Yeah, I agree. Well, in considering, 
you know, the toilet that the the uh, the country is currently spinning in at the moment, I, I think it's going to be a heck of a lot easier in the coming days and years for us to find, you know, some common ground, some congruency to be able to come to the table and find solutions. Uh, everyone wants to be able to feed their families, I would think, outside of counting on a government check to do so. Um, and since I've been in that position, that's something else that I can speak to as well. So, yes, you are right. There, there are quotes. Let me say this. Yeah. President Trump had almost an open door policy for black people at the White House. Right. And they wouldn't come. Wow. Well, I mean it. When I say he had the most open access to the black community. And I was standing there begging them, y'all need to come, come up here. Have a, I don't like it. Well, come up and tell him you don't like it. Tell him why you don't like it. Tell him what you don't like. When I say open door policy and it wasn't taken advantage of, and now I talk to a lot of black leaders and a lot of black pastors that are literally kicking themselves in the behind yep. because Joe Biden doesn't have an open door policy for him. That's right. And, and Barack Obama didn't have an open door policy where he was willing to sit down and listen to uh, uh, black issues and whatever. President Trump had it, and if I could tell you all the invitations that were sent out and all the people that refused to come, you would be surprised at, at the ones that refused yeah. to have that audience. And I would tell them, you want to sit out and throw rocks from across the street? Yep. Why don't you come up and sit down with them and face them man to man? And they wouldn't do it. Right. Some high profile people, some mid profile people, some low profile people, but, but they rather throw rocks and hide their hands or throw rocks from outside. Now they're all calling me and saying, I should have went and talked to him right. because Biden has everything in a mess. Yeah, of course. You know, and I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, of course, from the, from the religious ones and that's fine, but it reminds me of, you know, the scripture of the banquet, right? Where with the parable, yeah. right? Where, where yeah. everyone was yeah. called, the chosen were called and they, and they didn't, they didn't come. And so the banquet master's like, well, to heck with it. We're going to open the doors for the others. And others did come in. So th that is a, that is a real tragedy. Um, and, you know, shoulda, coulda, woulda. Along those lines, so here's my next question for you. What did President Trump do, not only for America, but I want you to speak to what he's done for black Americans specifically that cannot be undone. The first thing I thought of were HBCUs and funding. But as I understand it, that too may be on the chopping block. So can you enlighten us to, as to some of the things that the president did that cannot be undone? Well, the, once again, like you said, the HBCU initiative, the funding for the HBCUs, but it is indeed on the chopping block. Joe Biden is going to chop it up. We uh, worked very hard on criminal justice reform. Now, criminal justice reform started out as prison reform. Okay. But myself and my part, business partner, Kareem Lanier, we were uh, adamant that there had to be a criminal justice element added to it so that there would be equity in the court system. President Trump... Um, was in very uh, much agreement with that. So we had the First Step Act. We also had the creation of the Opportunity Zone, which designated certain areas so that it would incentivize private investors to um, invest in disenfranchised communities to improve the overall living conditions. You know, when I met Trump back in 2011, he said something to me then that was very, very insightful. Uh, he said to me, and this was once again 10 years ago, he said, I really believe unemployment, underemployment, and depressed living conditions contribute to a lot of the issues surrounding or within the black community. Sure. And he was right. Yeah. Unemployment, underemployment. Now, there were some things we were working on. Um, the platinum plan, 
that would have empowered a number of black Americans had he been reelected. Even though we haven't thrown it away, when he comes back out, we're going to be reintroducing that in in an even upgraded fashion. But he was very, I mean, he pardoned the first heavyweight champion, first black heavyweight champion, Jack Johnson. He designated Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, home, a national landmark. Mm -hmm. He did ceremonial things for the black community. But once again, he did a lot of positive, tangible things as well that he does not get the appreciation for. Sure. Well, yeah, you know, it's funny. So let me share a story with you. So, oh gosh, probably about five months ago, I went, it's before the the playpen fence came down from around the Capitol and I was in Virginia and decided to roll into the, into DC for just a moment and took my phone and video and just walked through the plaza. People were, you know, starting to get out again and enjoy the sunshine with their families. And, and I stumbled across my first group of folks that I wanted to chat with who were open to it. Uh, we're a group of black gentlemen, and uh, one was an ardent, like, Democrat. Uh, another one voted, much like you, uh, based on personality and voted for some Republicans and voted for Trump and, and felt like, you know, I just didn't appreciate the tweets and, and uh, you know, and, and his feelings were hurt over personality conflicts. But when I asked, what do you, <laughs> what do you think about the Opportunity Zones? And they looked at me like I had three heads. They had no, and I mentioned other things that the president had done specifically that uh, that were uh, targeted to enhance and to benefit Black Americans, and they had no idea. And I would fault not only the mainstream media but also churches for not uh, not espousing those and and not highlighting them, not featuring them as they should have. President Trump never got the credit I believe that he should have, and he's certainly not getting it now. Um, but that was really shocking to me. And I'm actually on a call every, well, not every Tuesday, but they do host a call still. So that is still going on for the Opportunity Zones. Uh, Bishop Leon Benjamin hosts a call who is um, out of Virginia. And uh, it's very enlightening to listen to listen in on those calls. Uh, and I, too, would like to be a part of, you know, fostering those efforts across the country so I can see where that still stays. You know, it's still intact. I want to move over to how does, um, <laughs> how, how does the CR? and in equity, diversity, you know, how, how does all of that, I, I draw a direct line back to the church with all of these teachings of the world, because I firmly believe that we, not, I'm not speaking about you, but I want you to tell us how you do it at your church. Uh, with regard to, you know, doctrines of devils, if you will, that are very uh, humanistic, they are uh, anti-Christ in nature in, in espousing that one race could ever be more supreme than another since there's only one race. There's only one supreme being as far as I'm concerned, and it's not me and it's not you. And it's not anyone else other than God. So how do you address things like critical race theory? Uh, from the pulpit in the way of the message that you're sharing with the gospel? Well, I haven't directly approached that topic from the pulpit, but indirectly, the thing I understand is that light dispels darkness. Yeah. Oftentimes we're so focused on the darkness that we ignore the light. Amen. The light dispels the darkness. And I'll give you an example. I remember when um, the teaching of the theory of evolution um, being taught in schools as a as basically a fact, and a number of Christians were outraged. A number of Americans were upset and concerned, and taking their children out of uh, public school and putting them into parochial school until parochial school had to add that to their curriculum as well. And they were homeschooling. But here's the thing: 
I taught my daughter at home. My daughter's an only child. My wife and I taught my daughter at home that no matter what's being taught in regards to evolution, we believe in the God of the Bible. We are anti-evolution. So what you do, you eat the meat and spit out the bone. And so what happens, mm-hmm. even even now, um, there has to be a balance there, but I don't get hung up on certain topics and issues if I can uh, teach my people the right way or teach my that's people right. to teach their people the right way. Right. And so that's what happens. You know, we, we become so divisive and we become so argumentative over this that we want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and we don't, we're, we're fearful of something we don't need to be fearful of. Oh, There's amen. a large segment of America that is very, very fearful of critical race theory teaching. Right. And um, I think as a result, they're giving it attention that it wouldn't ordinarily have received. Right. I, I but really, if we teach what's right, listen, the Bible says he has made of one blood all nations of men for it to dwell upon the earth. Once we're Christmas, the Bible says there's neither Jew nor male nor female. We'll put in there black nor white. Right. <laughs> and so what we're saying is a lot of things that divided us, once we become Christian, the blood of Christ unites us. And right. it makes our physical or secular or material differences irrelevant. Right. Because we're connected spiritually. But America is always going to be divided along some kind of line, uh, especially regarding what's being taught in school. Oh, I agree. And once again, to me, to me, evolution has done more damage than critical race theory ever will, because we have an entire generation of atheists now. You can see it on social media when you begin to speak up for the Lord. You have an entire generation of atheists that really have no uh, fear of saying anything crazy about God that they want to say. You got it. I know. I hear and from them regularly. Yeah. I get, listen. The theory of evolution yeah. has also undermined the moral fiber. Yes. Because if we're nothing but animals and apes and we're acting instinctively, if there are no moral absolutes, then we can do what we want to do. That's exactly and right. And I, I, I trace all that back to the teaching of Darwinism in the schools. That's good. That's good. And I, you know, I always tell my audience, we have two choices. We are, we are either going to live after that lower nature, you know, or walk after mm-hmm. the spirit. Yeah. And if you don't have the spirit, then you really don't have another choice. So that, that is the, I call it the lizard brain that you're going to, you know, live in. And I'm, and I'm glad you spoke to that because that same, what you just said can also apply to all things homosexual, all things trans yeah. where like right now, listen, I see pastors who are like, so scared to even touch any of that, that they, they're just like, well, they're the same ones telling us that open borders are okay because Jesus was a refugee. I mean, nothing drives me nuts faster than hearing that from a pulpit. And so I'm like, man, if you don't know the gospel and if you don't know how to love people out of, uh, you know, dark valleys or out of confusion or out of anger and rejection and depression and hatred and familial generational rejection, if you don't how to speak to those spiritual things, man, you're just going to leave people broke, busted, and disgusted on a number of levels. And I believe you, I've never heard anyone um, adopt that viewpoint of, you know, evolution and Darwinism has a direct impact, you know, on where we are um, morally, I think. And, and, and morally, you can also tie a direct line to uh, our liberty, you know, and people are looking around yeah. going, how do we get here? And I'm like, well, you're not going to maintain, you know, that officer, Eric, who called in earlier, he says something that people often say, not only on the left, but they say it on the right and they say it in the church. And it bugs me. 
and God bless him, but this bugs me. He said, um, I'm fine with you doing what you do as long as what you do doesn't encroach upon me. And I'm like, I, I actually adhere to that, but you're, but you're dealing with a society that does not want to honor your liberty. And now we're right. 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 And so, but I also look at the gospel as something that is supposed to be liberating people um, across the globe, you know, from all kinds of crazy doctrines and ideologies. Um, And I just feel like if the church, you know, would actually step up and preach the gospel itself, and like you said, shine the light and stop focusing on the darkness, we probably wouldn't be where we are. Okay, so now I know, I know that you speak to the president on the regular, so you know I'm going to ask you. uh, I know if he was running today, you know, if it was today, he'd be running today, but can we look for a Trump presidency in 24? And I'm going to tell you why I'm asking. Because he just got involved with this beautiful new thing called Truth Media and Truth Social. And I'm really looking forward to that. I actually just purchased some, to- some stocks today. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to that. But um, I'm wondering, I was hoping that wasn't signaling that um, with that acquisition that he would not be running in 2024. Is there anything you can share with us? Well, absolutely. I talk to him just about every week. And um, I'll call him sometime and say, I'm just checking in. And he likes that. And okay. we usually we chop it up, tell some jokes. In fact, I called him one day. He was on the golf course. And uh, he blamed my call for him not winning that tournament that day. <laughs> said, I was winning. Now you call me. I'm probably going to lose now. And so I said, hey, man, don't be trying to blame it on me. <laughs> now, I called him another day. Here's the thing that I find funny. And then I'll get to what you're saying. Sure. I just want to bring this up. I called him one day, and he was on the golf course. And he said, hey, I'm here. With, and he was golfing with uh, um, Lawrence Taylor. Mm-hmm the football player, the former football player, and O.J. Anderson, former football player, two black guys. Mm-hmm. And they're out there having a good time. And if, in fact, I got on the phone and talked to Lawrence Taylor and O.J. for a minute. But I was a little upset afterwards. And the reason why was this. They've been golf buddies for years. He's not president. They're golfing together in private. I said, those guys know he's not a racist. Right. But they didn't go out there in public for him. They're golfing with him in private, mm-hmm. but in public, when they hear those racist allegations, they never stood up. Now, the thing about President Trump is this. He has a better temperament than me. He, he, he understands them wanting to protect their brand or whatever, and he never got upset about that. I remember one time Al Sharpton and I debated on MSNBC, and I was at the Oval Office the next day, and I talked to him. I said, me and Fat Al. I said, we're skinny head. I call him bobblehead Al. Now he looks like a bobblehead. You're not wrong. I said, he and I were debating about you, and he was saying all this stuff. And you know what? He didn't say one bad thing about Sharpton. He looked up a little bit. He said, you know, me and I have been friends for a long time. And um, he used mm-hmm. to come around, and I helped him a lot. And I was waiting on him to say something bad about Al, and he didn't. A lot of people don't know, Jesse Jackson called the White House on a regular basis the last four years. Now, one thing I will really? say about Jesse, Jesse Jackson told me back in 2016, he said, it's good that you're with Trump. He said, just in case he wins, we need somebody over there. But Jesse Jackson called the White House all the time and talked to Trump. In fact, Jesse Jackson had called him a racist on television, and then he called Trump in private and apologized, and Trump didn't out him. He, he, he refused to out him right. 
because, you know, that's, he's, he's got a better temperament in that respect to me. Now, to go to what you said, I talked to him a lot, and I nailed him down. Man, you're running or not? Mm-hmm. And so he told me, yes, I'm going to run again. In fact, he even told me, if I run again, you're going to have to come up and take a position this time. Because okay. last time he offered me a position in 2016, I turned it down. And he asked me, he said, why didn't you take the job in 2016? And I said, because I came up there and got fired. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> now, right now, he told me his exact words were, I'm treading water. Okay. I, if the election is held today, he'll run. But, you know, as far as tomorrow, two sure. years from now, I don't know how he's going to be feeling. Sure. Um, I called him last week the day Truth Social came up. And he didn't answer, but he called me back that evening. And uh, I told him, I said, man, I wish you had to tip me off in advance <laughs> so I could have made some money. And you know what he said to me? He said, and I don't know if I should tell this, but I'm telling it anyway. And if he doesn't like Uh-oh. it, he can call me. He said, <laughs> he said, I've made more money in two days <laughs> with this than I made in over 40 plus years of real estate wow. combined. And see, that is, that is an indictment on where we are as a nation because people know that there is nowhere else to go for cover. That's exactly why he was able to do that. That's amazing. Now, wow. The way he did it, Nesta, he caught everybody by surprise. It was a good move. Now, here's the thing. Yeah. I don't want him to start getting like the cat that ate the canary. Right, right. <laughs> and 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 lose his edge. But I don't think I don't think he will. I think he's yeah. going to run. Uh, as of today, yes, he's running. Right. Off the record. Yeah, of course. Now, yeah. He hasn't announced yet because once he announces, he's going to have to. He doesn't have to announce yet. He's being a kingmaker right now. But I think he's going to run. And if he does, I'm right out there with him. Okay. Good to know that. Now, who, or I, I don't really want to put you on the spot with who else you're endorsing around the country. But, um, you know, some people are very critical of the president's endorsements. And I have found out the hard way that, you know, they're, they're, people look at endorsements, you know, as though they are, uh, oh gosh, it's almost like a knighthood, right? And like, there's not some stuff that can't come out about somebody after the fact or after an endorsement. Uh, is there anyone in particular or any race around the country that you're paying attention to right now, you know, where you're really uh, encouraging people to get behind a particular candidate or candidates? You know what? I've been, I've been a little reluctant so far, only because I don't want to endorse someone that the president doesn't endorse. Okay. I don't want to be on opposite sides with him okay. because people will magnify it. Yeah. So in certain primaries, I'm waiting. And, um, you know, I know Herschel Walker. I talked to him even before he announced. And so, but here's the thing, and I said this to some others. If the Republican Party doesn't go after this black vote, we're not going to win. Elect- There's going to be a lot of winnable elections that we lose. Right. So they have to put together a strategy to attract black voters because uh, we saw the difference that it made yeah, in sure. 2020. Sure. Yeah, I mean, and I'm, once again, uh, yeah. Stacey Abrams is out there yep. very <laughs> with her campaign. Stacey uh, Abrams is not letting the grass grow under her feet. That's right. I was on Air Force One back in 2017 or 18, and we warned some people that were there. At Memphis, Stacey Abrams putting together a very aggressive ground game. Y'all better get on top of this. Right. And get more grassroots involved if we want to, if we, if we're going to need that vote to be successful. Right. And so I think that that's something that the candidates have to, um, 
to be aware of. Well, I got to tell you, I, like I see a lot of fighting. I see a lot of fighting, though, Pastor. I see fighting between Candace and Kim. I see fighting between others, you know, and I'm like, what in the world are you two ladies fighting about online, nevertheless, all out in public? And listen, I'm not immune to it. I've gone to blows with somebody on Twitter that everyone knows and who will remain nameless because I've agreed to do so. Um, but out of respect for my godmother, Alvita, <laughs> and the Lord. But uh, otherwise, I would be full disclosure on my own show. Um, but well, we see all this infighting. And it's like... Yeah, but... <laughs> You know what? That's that's the black community. We've never been monolithic in our thought processes. But here's the thing: um, some things are done below the belt. And yeah. you know, if you notice, once Kim filed that lawsuit, Candace shut up. Yeah, Candace should have never said the things that she said about her in the first place. That, that, that she's not only a wife; she's a mother. She has a family. There are certain things that I know about people, and I would like to say about people that I would never say on social media. You but both. when you're thirsty for likes and you want clickbait. <laughs> And when you want some clickbait and you just want likes and you want to trend and no, you don't care, then that's what it is. But I'll tell you one thing, she shut that mouth when that license, when that um, that lawsuit came out. I mean, to be quite honest, I know Candace very well. I could tell you some things. I could say some things about her that would tarnish her image, but I won't do it. Right. You, you understand what I mean? Yeah, of course. Of course. Her, and her, her, her and I have had our private disputes, but and, but I won't go sure. all the way public with some, but. You know, um, well, along those lines, how when you get how, older, you look back and tell yourself, I should have, a lot of people get older and <laughs> look back and say, I should have been a little more seasoned. Yes. With that. Yes. Along those lines, how helpful is it that the rhetoric a lot of times is come off the plantation? No, I don't like that rhetoric. Right. And you know, notice this. Now, here's what I said from the beginning. I had this conversation with the RNC, Rana, and yeah. back when Bob Paducic was the, um, number two man, and Tommy Hicks came in. I said, listen, y'all got to stop that, but don't stand behind that Democratic Party plantation right. and slavery because it's offensive to black people. And I said, it would be no different than if you said the Democratic Party was uh, the Holocaust right. and, uh, right. I mean, the, and, and the, the Jewish people in the Democratic Party were in the concentration camp. Right. I said, slavery was our Holocaust. The plantation was our concentration camp. We got to leave that because here's the thing. And I said this to the campaign. I said, if Trump got 8% of the black vote, and that means 92% of the black vote went to the other side. So you're talking about 92% of black intelligentsia, black academia, black sure. entrepreneurs, black college students, black school teachers, black firemen, black everything. You can't say they're all dumb and stupid and idiotic slaves on a plantation because they don't vote the way we vote. That's right. You, can, right. you can't do that. And right. see, here's the thing. And I'll give an example. You know, it was a lot of smoke and mirrors. I was familiar with it then, and I had confrontations about it. I remember telling Candace Owens, unless you're tracking, then all you're doing is blowing smoke up our butt. If you're not tracking this so-called Brexit movement success, if you can't, Monica, you come out the church world. Mm -hmm. What do we have to track our evangelistic success? Mm -hmm. Testimony. That's right. Someone said, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Right. I was blind, but now I see. How many people can you stand up that will say, I was a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat. Right. I heard Candace Owens, and now I am a Republican right. as a result <laughs> of what I heard her say. You can't. You can't produce them. I right. said, unless you're having voter registration components to your blended movement, and you're having people that are switching over, and you can show some positive accomplishments, then all we have to do is take your word for it. And when you look at those blended meetings, 
and there's 700 people in the Brexit meeting and 10 of them are black and 690 of them are white, then you're saying this is it's, yeah. it's not yeah. what it appears to be. Right. And the movement was very, very ineffective. And some people bought it. And it was actually counterproductive because the rhetoric that comes out of your mouth, you have to understand that certain topics are so sensitive. Yeah, that you don't need to get out there on it. Right. No, I agree, and I've and I've t- I too have had to learn that the hard way. Uh, so I I can appreciate that for sure. And she is young. She is young, and she's certainly a firebrand. And I had it. And I had it. Yeah. Now, what's interesting? <laughs> what's interesting about the and yeah, we're, well, yeah, you know, you know how it can be. We're all a little hard headed when we're younger. Yeah. But yeah, you add yeah, some pride yeah. into that, and that's a real that that can be a heck of a combination. Now. I will say along the Blexit lines, I was fascinated. I had some friends who were uh, formerly uh, a part, formally a part of that movement here in Georgia, and I was surprised to learn that it, it they were not they were encouraged not to align with Republicans as a party. And I thought, and I and I, excuse my language, but I said, well, what the hell are y'all doing? I mean, what? What? Are, how are you going to get across stages across the country and talk about slavery and plantations and come on off the plantation? Where the hell are they going? Where are you leading the people? Right. right? Like, if you're trying you're to take somebody off right. of a plantation, where are you leading them to? Blexit is that the final stop? And so, I'm so glad right. to finally hear you say that. That there's, but you see, know, what yeah. that does that empowers. Right. If I'm the leader of that movement, then that empowers me. Right. So that I can have more individual power regarding the Republican Party. And I can bend and shape their will and policy. Because right. the movement will rise and fall on me. Correct. And I think that's more what it was. It was a vanity movement rather than a movement that can be beneficial for the entire party. Right. Yeah. To well, the party's credit, though, to yeah. the party's credit, I think they listen to me. Because when you hear that rhetoric, Sure. You don't hear any white people saying that. Uh uh-uh. uh. <laughs> oh yeah, black people saying that. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, we know better. <laughs> the party didn't adopt it. You don't hear Republicans just going out there. You're black. You black people are slaves on the plantation. They're Democrats. Right. Oh yeah, black white people saying that. You're black people saying that. Right. Right. And even when it comes to hyperbolic rhetoric, you know, there's still a, it's one thing to have hyperbolic rhetoric. That's, that's one thing. It's another thing to create, like you said, an entire movement or otherwise known to some people as a fiefdom, uh, around hyperbolic rhetoric like that. And it, and it is offensive and it is offensive to a lot of people. So, but it also resonated with a lot of folks to get people up and moving. And I know that Candace is a darling to, uh, I got to tell you that this is my, this is my big, um, this is my big grief, my big gripe with the Republicans in general. They look for people like me with a microphone. They look for people like you with a microphone, a pulpit and black skin. And whenever it comes to blacks and, and Latinos, they, they look for those people to go out and market for them and they will attract, they will attract and then suck onto the shiny, the latest shiny object 
And it drives me absolutely bananas because it has nothing to do with character at that point. It has nothing to do with ideas, has nothing to do with the soul of the person. It's like, oh, there's one of them. So they, they, they look the right color. They can speak the right language. Let's just latch on to them. And, there, and there's just a laziness that's there that is just, it's like there's a fear of each other. And I don't use the word phobic because I hate that word, but there's a genuine spiritual fear that's like, we don't, you know, Republicans don't know how to reach, just reach out to, listen, white mothers, I was one of them on survivor's benefits when my husband died for 22 years, I've, I've been widowed and raised my daughter on survivor's benefits. So I know what it's like to wonder if my lights are going to be on. And many times they weren't, if I was going to have food, sometimes I didn't. And I can relate to a young black mother who has the same issues. So what? She's black. I'm white, but I can relate to her. So if I'm going to create policy, if I'm going to show up at someone's door as someone who's stumping for someone else or canvassing, or I'm the candidate and I happen to be white, there are things that are fundamental to all of us as Americans. Like you said, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You can run right up into a hood, into a trailer park, whatever, and find everyone still has the same desire for safety, for shelter, for food, for uh, education, for understanding, you know, for opportunity. And I just, it grieves me that we don't seize more of those opportunities as Republicans, as people who are positioned, you know, we're so tightly knit with our great ideas, you know, but we don't know how to get out and share them. So that's my little, there's my soapbox. I'll step down now. <laughs> Listen, we, were, we were at the White House mm-hmm. in a strategy session about appealing to the black community. And it was almost like everybody was playing the blind man and the elephant. Right, right. And my business partner said, you have to understand, black people want the same thing that white people want. You got it. And you got, one of the people in there said, well, what's that? You know what he said? He said money. Right, <laughs> right. You, you appeal now, when we said money, he wasn't saying free money giveaways. That's right. He's talking about right. economic opportunity. Of course. Uh, economic, because we were working on something called economic justice reform, but it was economic opportunities. You know, if you think about it, m- m- a majority of the problems, quote unquote problems, in the black community are financially based problems. Yes. People rob, that's a financial problem. People sell drugs because that's a financial based Prop issue. I'm selling drugs to do what? To make money. I'm stealing for what? Because I don't have the money to pay for it. I'm right. robbing somebody to do what? To take their money. Right. The number one problems in the black community are financially related. Right. That when a person is able to be self-sufficient or economically empowered, they won't have to sell drugs. They won't have to rob. They won't have to steal. And so, you know, right. that is a message that will resonate, the message of economic empowerment. And a number of the problems will be solved on its own, not government handouts. Everybody in the government check, not government cheese, not food programs, not book bags or haircuts. Right. Opportunities. <laughs> and, and Trump provided that. Right. With that record low unemployment, Trump right. provided that um, in America. And, and you know, Joe... Joe undid it, but you know, it, it is what it is. It is what it is for now, for now. Okay, so leave my audience with a great word of encouragement because you know we're going to bring you back. This is, and I think I'm supposed to be on your show soon, so that ought to oh, be yeah. fun. You're going to come on. Uh, we're going to have some time. Good time. <laughs> 
<laughs> but you're definitely coming back. But I want you to leave my audience with a word of encouragement. Because listen, my audience is over here pocket, popping, uh, uh, you know, Rolades like Tic Tacs. They're not sleeping at night. They're drinking too much. They are madder than hell. They are ready to, you know, run to the border. They don't know what to do. But they are, you know, they lean on me for, hey, uh, give us a word of encouragement. Monica, What's what do you think? Or when are we all going to rise up? And I'm like, okay, everyone just breathe just exhale for a minute and just let the Lord show you some things and reveal some things to you in the spirit. So then you know how to move strategically. So what is your word of encouragement to my audience? Well, the Bible says in the book of Acts, known unto God are all his plans from the beginning of the world. And so the Lord knows what he's doing. He knows how he's going to do it. We just have to keep our trust and our faith in him, the Bible says in the book of Genesis, shall not the judge of all the earth do that which is right. And so he's going to preserve his remnant. He always preserves his remnant. There's some things you and I will talk about on the next yeah. one. I think God is calling his church out of the church that this, uh, this, uh, what, what we purport to be the church is yeah. not the true church. Yeah. And so the true church is going to be okay. The true church, true believers. In the Lord, if we put our faith and hope and trust in him, he's going to make sure that we're able to navigate through each and every crisis yeah. uh, that we find ourselves in. The Bible says the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in you. And so um, yeah. he says for us to be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make our requests known to God. And he will give us a peace that passes all understanding. So let not the heart be troubled. Get to that voting booth. Yep. Amen. <laughs> Both these demons out. Both these demons out of office. <laughs> but the, the devil is in the Democratic Party. Completely yes. and totally. Now, the devil is in both parties, but the Democratic Party is totally giving itself over right. to Satan. Right. Totally. Right. The Republican Party has it. Yeah. So I, if there is a party that is pro, pro God, it's the Republican Party. Let's vote them devils out of office. Amen. That's what we do. Amen to that. We vote them demons out, and we'll be all right. Amen to that, Pastor. Well, we love you over here at the Monica Matthews Show. You're welcome back anytime. And it is so good to finally have you on. And I look forward oh, to many more, many more times. I do too. And I look forward to having you. Okay. We'll talk. I'll have you on with me very soon. Okay. Sounds good, sir. Thank you so God much. Bless. God bless you too. Bye bye. Well, that was Dr. Daryl C. Scott of uh, New Spirit Revival Center, Cleveland Heights, Ohio, uh, speaks with the president uh, possibly weekly, if not biweekly. But, but uh, you know, this conversation is going to trigger some people, I'm sure. But these are the conversations that need to happen. If, if you're triggered by the conversation, then it's probably time for you to check your spirit on some things. And I, and I say that with all humility, um, because it, we have been conditioned to not have open dialogue with one another um, as it pertains to people with different skin color. So for those uh, folks who get triggered around these conversations, um, and I've had it happen to me on live television, live uh, radio, uh, where people are live streaming, where people are very upset that I'm even having a conversation of this nature because of the color of my skin. And listen, I don't lead with my personal life on this. If I did, if my late husband were not black 
and uh, in Cherokee Indian. If my daughter was not bi ethnic, I would. I have always had these conversations as I've become more engaged in social dialogue because it matters to me, and particularly, you know, in my ministry time. And I'm going to tell you guys something, and I'm going to leave you with this. Nothing will cure you of looking down or up at other and to other people uh, than ministry faster. Nothing will cure you faster. Nothing. Because when you're sitting across from people and they are multi, 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 multi millionaires, some of the most successful people in the world have sat across from me in ministry who have the most mucked up lives that you could possibly imagine. And it's not because they have all of this money. It's not. Some of you are like, well, yeah, there you go. The Bible talks about rich people. Uh, You know, you spend so much time hating on the rich and it bugs me because the man who went to buy our Savior's body back after he was crucified was not broke. He wasn't broke. And so it bugs me that we have these fascist, socialist, communist, Marxist ideas around the rich and that there are these awful, rotten, horrific humans, you know, and we love to quote scripture around money, around the rich. We love, love, love to think about the rich guys going to get it in the end. You know how we are. And I don't subscribe to that because I, for instance, I watched Sarah Blakely uh, just today. I caught the very tail end of a video. She's just recently, some of you may not know, she is the founder and CEO of Spanx. And she just recently sold her company after I think 20 years in business, brilliant young business mind, um, I don't know what her political persuasions are. And honestly, I don't care for, for the sake of this conversation. This is all that matters to me. When she sold her company, do you know what she, do you know what she gifted her employees with? Two first-class round-trip tickets to anywhere in the world they wanted to go and $10,000 spending money. Now, that comes from a generous heart, and it comes from someone who is in a position, and yeah, yeah, I know, maybe she can write it off as an expense. I know some of you are going to poo-poo even a blessing by cre- accrediting it to, uh, you know, her tax base um, or a write-off for God's sakes. But I'd like to go with the fact that I know a lot of people who would not have been that generous and would have sold that company and kept right on walking and never looked back. But it also told me and ministered to my heart that she was in the position to even have the option to bless her company in that manner. That is a beautiful, godly thing. I watched the videos post uh, of her announcement, and they were going through the audience asking all these girls, you know, and guys where they were going to, uh, where they were going to go on their trips. One person is taking their honeymoon using these tickets to be able to afford their honeymoon to the place that they really wanted to be able to go and $10,000 spending money. I mean, that is, you know, another person's going to see their grandparent. Another person is going on a trip they never thought they'd be able to go on. I mean, that's what it's about. That is what being in a financial position of blessing 
is about. And not everyone has that heart. So whenever it comes to money and it comes to the church hating on people with money and people who are blessed, we have got to put that aside. One of the, one of the things that the stories I hear about President Trump consistently is how generous he's been over his lifetime whether it's helping someone on the side of the road or it's helping pay for someone's flight or it's going to get someone on a flight, you know, whatever it is. And I'm going to tell you guys something. I've been around wealthy people most of my life. As poor as I've been, my daughter will tell you that we are some of the wealthiest poor people she knows, and that is no joke. Um, because when we couldn't pay our electric bills, I was still going to, you know, $500 plate dinners and not having to put out for it, by the way. And, uh, but I was, I was, I was favored and I went I didn't hate on people that had money and I wasn't there to beg. I was there to learn. I was there to learn from people who made it honestly and from people who didn't make it honestly. Because those are lessons too from which we can glean so that we don't make those mistakes, right? And I think in the Republican Party and in the church in general, I think there needs to be an overhaul of our thinking and that like we just discussed with uh, Dr. Scott, whether you're, you know, poor um, and you're white or you're black, Latino, Asian, whatever, poor is poor. And poor people in poor communities will tell you that. Military towns will tell you that. They'll tell you that everyone is the same because there's not a lot there to distinguish between the haves and the have-nots. There are, hey, do you need bread? Do you need milk? And I'm going to tell you guys something. With the supply chains diminishing to to the extent that they are, you're going to need to look. You're going to find out real quick how to reach across the neighborhood and ask someone that you would not otherwise ask for assistance, for an egg, for a light bulb, for, you know, look, I've had to hijack electricity from my neighbor before because we were so broke. And I love that story because God gets all the glory because I thought it was really ingenious of me. (laughs) But, and all my good ideas come from the Lord, but I knocked on my neighbor's door and it was hotter than four hells in Georgia summer. And my little girl, God bless her. She's been through so much. And we, my AC was like the power company, the mafia, by the way, all utility companies were the mafia. But, um, and I mean that, but I showed up to pay my bill and those suckers would not accept my payment at the last minute. And, um, we had to sit there overnight, watched all of my food spoil because, you know, I had this cheap little refrigerator and freezer, and my food, my food was gone. It was in the middle of summer. And so the next day, for whatever reason, I still couldn't get them to turn it on. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to go to my neighbor and ask <laughs> if I could just borrow some electricity. So I took an extension cord, ran that sucker from her back porch outlet through my window into my den, over to my refrigerator, and we had a fan blowing on us, and we were able to plug the fridge back in. So ingenuity baby when you're broke you figure it out quick so i've i've learned a lot from being poor and i've learned a lot i've never been wealthy i do look forward to that one day hopefully maybe it's on the other side of eternity i don't know but um but i have been i've been able to pay my bills as well and that's a blessing every month i hit pay on my electric bill because of that one experience i could actually make me cry because of that one experience, I, uh, I thank God that I can pay for my electricity. As much as I hate the utility companies. <laughs> but I remember being in a position when I didn't even have money to pay my bills. 
And so when you guys are out there canvassing and you're stumping and you're, you're, you're meeting, you're meeting of the minds about how you're going to reach out in your communities, please refer to this broadcast. And, and believe me as a white person, believe Dr. Scott as a black person, uh, people really don't care how you show up as long as you show up and you're authentic and you care and you're honest and you listen and you have ideas and you bring people hope. And if it's one thing right now, this world can use some more of it's hope. I think we could all agree on that. Oh, what a fun show. I look forward to being on his and uh, continuing our on-air relationship. So much fun. I love you guys. Thank you for joining me today. And uh, we would have taken more calls, but I think I had an issue with my call center. So we'll get that back up and running next show. And uh, hey, you know what to do. Be good to your neighbor beginning in your own mirror. And remember, if you're an American, act like one. Thank you.